Okay, so we're going to start our session now. Let's stand up together and we'll sing Christ is Risen, which we won't do next week. We'll do either a prayer or we'll sing the, uh, the Ascension hymn. But we'll sing Christ is Risen together. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, head upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Oh yeah, come on in everyone. Do we need to grab more chairs? We can create we can create a row of chairs if we need to. Here, let's get some chairs. I have a few in here. Is there anyone logged in? Me. Okay. Well, that's okay. I count for something. Alrighty. Christ is risen. He is risen. If, if we believe it, then we repeat it a lot in the church. And at least three times, you know. And then, uh, you know, in honor of the Holy Trinity. So that's why we sing a lot of things or we'll do repeat prayers or things three times. Every time you hear the number, you, you have a threefold repetition of something. Well, first of all, what do they say in uh, education? They say that, um, that repetition, repetition is one of the most, the, the most effective ways of memorization. So, um, and we repeat things that we think are important too. You'll think of the Lord have mercy, you know, that we do one or three or twelve. Twelve, what do you think of the holy apostles or the twelve tribes of Israel? Forty, the word forty is in the Bible everywhere. So we do forty-fold repetitions of things. Like we think of Moses and um, the people of Israel, the forty years in the wilderness. Or Lord, the Lord fasting for forty days. Or the forty days from the resurrection to the ascension. And so in, in the Bible, 40 is always seen as a, as a fulfillment. And so when you see these repetitions, it's not the, the church does, never does vain repetition. We do repetition, but we don't do vain repetition. And so that's an important nuance to have in there. Um, that, um, that that is, that's, there's a distinction there. A lot of times people, if they hear you repeat something, they go, oh, that's just vain repetition. No, we really mean it. It's not vain at all. So that, that's part of the little shift that's taking place. I mean, one of, the, one of the prime examples is the Lord says, when you pray, pray like this. And what does he say? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so on. He gives us the Lord's prayer. And he do you think he presumed that we would just say it once or once a week? Maybe, you know, that, that's not too much. Or, so it's only vain if we make it vain. 
and that's really important. Um, so a little, a little uh, entree, you know, to our uh, to our session that we're going to do here. Now I don't have books for everyone, unfortunately, and I didn't print out copies. But if you guys want to pass them around and share them, you can. Although I don't know how helpful it is to follow along, um, because I kind of do my own thing anyway. Um, I follow along, you know, use the text as a guide, but also kind of, you know, comment freely as we go. So, um, and let's see if there's anyone on, is there anyone online yet? No, still, okay. So, so we're on chapter 11. Do you guys know what page it is for those who are following along? 165. Okay, for those who are following along. Um, I basically take, I had a little too much fun in my early days of catechism, and I would say, we're going to spend one week on something, and then four weeks later, we were still finishing it up. So we started using a book to kind of give us a structure to follow. Um, but uh, I kind of use the, the text as almost like a platform for, you know, for lecturing on, on the topic. But uh, and it helps keep us on track. So we're talking about the structure of the church. Last time we talked about the origins of the church. We talked about the, the church originating with Christ and the apostles and continuing from there. And it not just being a matter of historical continuity, but of faith and belief, and more importantly than anything, life in the Holy Spirit. And a lot of people from Western backgrounds, any time they think of tradition, they think of they quote, loosely quote passages from the Bible that say some things like traditions of men, you know, derogatory things about tradition and repetition. And uh, <clears throat> the church has always been traditional from the time that it transitioned from being of, you know, a Jewish sect that continued worshiping in the synagogue and the temple to um, developing its own rites. And the word right is an important word. Um, R-I-T-E, the root of the, the word ritual, um, from which we get, you know, our various practices that we do. And the primary rite that we do in the church is that very thing that the Lord instituted, the Last Supper. You know, he didn't leave us with a book. He didn't leave us with um, letters that he had written. He let us, left us with this, this practice in particular. This is what he instructed the apostles to do. To gather and to break bread, distribute wine in remembrance of him. And so at the very beginning there, we, we, we used the language of the liturgy, although the liturgy hadn't, the shape of it hadn't fully developed yet. Um, but they gathered uniquely to break, to break the bread, for the prayers, the breaking of the bread, the apostles' teaching, as we hear in the book of Acts, and, um, and the, the, the prayers, did I say that? But uh, there was structure from the very beginning, but it was never understood as vain. It was always understood as, as one Orthodox theologian has put it, the tradition is the, the life of the Holy Spirit in the church. It's inspired. And um, that's why we do what we do. There's a living continuity, and as we discussed a while back, there's a family, there's a culture, there's a way that we become a part of, and that family is that family that has Christ as the head, 
You know, the father, you say the patriarch. Christ is our patriarch. And who's our matriarch? Well, his most holy mother is Theotokos. And she has an important role in our life as the first Christian. And so we will uh, we'll talk about her eventually as well. So let's talk about the structure of the church. <laughs> the church is composed of a local bishop. Presbyters. And a presbyter is the, the word from which the word priest is has evolved. Um, deacons and laity gathered around the holy table, reflected reflecting here on earth the unity and the harmony of harmony of the all holy trinity. Remember that the goal of the Christian life is not just to know about God, but to be united to God. And if we believe that God is love, we believe that God is a communion of persons. The own, there, there is no love without persons. And so we, we believe that God is revealed, has been revealed as a community, a communion of love of persons in relationship with one another. And that we have the opportunity to enter into, to become participants in that community, that communion. So it's not, it's not merely relational. Um, it's, you might, to use a big word, a philosophical word, it's ontological or essential. There's something deep within us. You know, it's not just an interaction with God or merely a relationship with God, but it's communion. How do I explain that? It's a mystery. <laughs> we like the word mystery, but it, it's, it's, it is something that we, we can talk about that has been experienced in the lives of those who have come before us. And therefore, we would say that as much as we have a doctrinal framework and a historical continuity, we have guidelines, we have fence posts that, that keep us in place um, in order to really enter into life in Christ, you have to, you have to experience it. And uh, so it's not just an intellectual endeavor. Father Seraphim Rose calls it God's revelation to the human heart. I love that. And I always tell people the only reason to be interested in the church truly and deeply is if you love Christ. Not just because you think it has the best doctrine or the best theology or the best, you know, historical continuity or something like that. Those things are, in, are good, intriguing, but those will always fail you because there's always a limit to how much theology you can understand. And if you start reading history, you see how messy it gets at times, even in the church. Even at the church with a capital T and a capital C, there are people who made mistakes and confused things. There were bishops who really messed up. What does that say about the church? Well, it says that man has fallen. <laughs> and we always talk about the church as being the place of healing a hospital. Some people who come to the church... They believe it's the best place of healing, but they choose not to be healed. Because to be healed, as we were talking about last week, means to change. And that comes as a, a big threat to us sometimes. We don't really want to change. And there are people who have ascended the ranks in the church. Maybe they started as a humble, you know, village priest or something like that. And next thing you know, everyone's saying you should be a bishop. And they think they know a thing or two. And... Next thing you know, there's an ecumenical council speaking out against them. 
and they're not willing to be humbled by it, you know. So the church is full of stories like that, but see, the integrity of the church has never been compromised itself, essentially, because the church is more than just a sum of its parts. It's the body of Christ that we get to be a part of. But there is a structure to it because it is a thing, you know, it is real. Um, And it's very humbling. The Apostle Peter, to whom the Lord entrusted the keys of the kingdom of heaven, compared the church to a spiritual house. So St. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says, You are also as living stones. You are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So just as a physical house is built according to a specific plan, it has a definite structure. So does the spiritual house that is the church. Every building must have a blueprint and building material that are appropriate to it. One could not build a skyscraper with the blueprints for a Cape Cod house. Nor could one build a skyscraper with pine two-by-fours. They could never support the weight of the building. And in the same way, the church must be designed and built with that which is appropriate to her inner nature. And by the way, we talk about the building, this, the building as the church, but the building isn't the church, just so you know. The building is an, is an icon, the building is a witness, and the building is a facility. Okay? We do believe that this place is holy, it's, it's consecrated. And it can't be used for anything other than like this building. You know, we won't have a talent show up in, the, up in here. You know what I mean? Or a concert or something like that. Um, we won't have a, a movie night or um, snacks. We don't even eat snacks up in here. You know, we only eat the Holy Communion and as what, what my godmother calls liturgical snack. When we have... Um, when we have what's called litia and artoclasia on feast days, there's a little special blessed bread and wine that we distribute. And you'll see that if you come on Wednesday evening. Um, but um, <clears throat> so while, while the building is considered consecrated, set apart, holy, it's a holy place. It's, not, it's, it's set apart for God's purpose. That's good. That's good. Um, the church isn't limited to this structure, you know. So someone comes and vandalizes our building, you know, God forbid. But, uh, um, you know, the church doesn't disappear. So it's just important to remember that because we do, in the Orthodox Church, we love beauty. We love the structures because it's, it's a continuation of the creativity that God has given us. And the, the church is as... It's not like the Tower of Babylon, you know what I mean? Like we're not, trying to, we're not trying to impress God or prove something to ourselves. We're trying to um, do something that's befitting of the worship of God in some little way. And it's always, no matter how beautiful or grand a church building is, it's always humble compared to what we will experience in the kingdom of God. So regarding the church's blueprint... Archimandrite, which is a, a priest monk, Vasileos, he says, If the Lord had wanted a merely administrative unity, 
with no further implications in terms of life and mystery, he would have provided as an image of the church's unity the Roman Empire, saying, Father, I desire that the faithful may be united as the Roman Empire is united. Our Lord, however, did not do this before his ascension to heaven. He prayed not that his disciples would attain to the unity of any worldly organization, but to that of the Holy Trinity. And he said, that they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This is the, the passage that converted me to orthodoxy before I even really knew what orthodoxy was, because I started to believe that the church is real. If Christ, are Christ and the Father one, I had a firm conviction that they were. And he was praying that, that, they would be, that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And I thought, that's a pretty definite real unity, isn't it? If that's the case, then the church must be real. He continues, that the world may believe, so that they may be one, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And that's why, actually, I often will say that I believe that even the unity of the faith is worth dying for. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Sounds like a pretty perfect love to me, and a high calling to which we're called. With men, with the Roman Empire, not going to happen. It didn't last, did it? Even Byzantium didn't last. Um, By the way, the United States of America will probably not last forever. You know, empires and societies rise and fall. And we pray that we pray that God preserves our we love this country that we live in with the freedoms that we do have. But we also understand that the freedoms that we have on earth are relative freedoms that can come and go. The only freedom that we have, the greatest one is to always to say, I am a Christian to follow Christ. And that's why reading the lives of of different people who suffered under communism, for example, and didn't lose their faith is an incredible witness to us when we start worrying about things. And we see that they were thrown into solitary confinement. And they were trying to serve the divine liturgy, you know, in a bunkhouse of a, of a gulag somewhere, a prison camp in the middle of nowhere. You know, trying to keep a little piece of bread stuffed in their pocket and a little water because they didn't have wine and serving the divine liturgy. And, you know... Um, but there are many, many writings from the last uh, hundred years, you know, recent days, um, from those who suffered through communism. One of the best is the book called Father Arseny. Have any of you read Father Arseny? Did you like it? It's an inspiring book. Um, Father Arseny, I'll write a couple of things down. Um, Father Arseny is the name of the book. It's called, like, Priest, Prisoner, Spiritual Father, but if you... And then um, the, a couple other people that you might want to read about are like very accessible to read about. Father George Calciu, Romanian. Um, you can find you can find uh, even videos and things of Father George giving talks and interviews. He just he he passed away within the last decade, I think. Another is Father Roman Braga. Father Roman, 
find YouTube videos, you know, some of them. But there's a great book called Interviews, Talks, and Homilies, um, a collection of um, interviews, talks, and homilies <laughs> with Father George Calciu. And uh, we, I think we, we keep it downstairs in the bookstore. Uh, really inspiring. And Father Arseny actually has two books. There's one, it's a kind of a gray cover book that's about him. And then there's a second one called Father Arseny, A Great Cloud of Witnesses. And it's about the people who were drawn to him, who were, um, who were part of his life and their experiences of the faith as being uh, a part of his little like underground church, you could say. You know, and I kept, I kept reading these beautiful, inspiring stories about Father Arseny in Russia. And um, like, wow, all these people surrounded him. And then it's talking about there being like 10 people was his, like his little underground church, you know. Um, but it's so inspiring because their faith was alive despite everything that was going around, uh, going on around them. So just a couple things. Empires rise and fall. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as long as, um, as, long as we're on this side of his return, <laughs> then the church will, will continue, the church on earth. So, so the church is therefore not, a, not merely an institution, although it has, it has structure. It's built according to a particular you know, um, blueprint, you could say, but it's more than that. The church is, is essentially an active communion with God. The church is mankind's participation in and through Christ in the eternal relationship of love among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they may be one, even as we are one. I can't believe the Lord said that. You know, that's, again, it's incredibly striking if you take it seriously. Commenting on the communal nature of the church, Metropolitan John Zuzulus, who wrote a, he wrote a book called Being as Communion, he says, for the church to present this way of existence, she must herself be an image of the way in which God exists. Her entire structure, her ministries, etc., must, must express this way of existence. The structure of the church, therefore, is a reflection of her heavenly archetype, the Holy Trinity. In the book of Acts, we read that the first Christians continued. Oh, yeah, this is the, the, uh, the very reference that I was getting at earlier. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Kinonia, as people, or kononia as they call it, but it's pronounced kinonia, fellowship, communion, and in the breaking of the bread and the prayers. At the very outset, that's Acts 2.42. At the very outset of the Christian era, then, we find the church gathered around the table of her Lord for the breaking of the bread. Because the church is first and foremost a Eucharistic community. And do you guys all know what the word, that word Eucharist means? You th- means literally means thanksgiving, but what are we referring to when we're talking about that, when we say the Eucharist? Amen. Communion, now we're talking, because the Lord, the Lord gave thanks, broke and distributed the bread and the wine. And so from that time of the Lord's giving thanks, it's always been referred to as the Eucharist. It comes from the, the Greek word um, evkaristia, which means thanksgiving. <clears throat> I always thought it was weird when my grandpa, who was a very godly Baptist guy, but he would always say, um, 
He'd always say, uh, dear Lord, he would say, we come to you with thanksgiving. And as a kid, I'm like, it's not thanksgiving. You know, I didn't know what he meant. But um, anyway, um, but the church, the people of God have always approached God with thanksgiving. They've, they've always approached God eucharistically. So the church is, a, a first and foremost, a Eucharistic community. And it is in the Eucharist that the Trinitarian structure of the church is most clearly manifest. At these gatherings, the word for gathering, you'll hear the word on occasion, um, uh, synaxis. Synaxis, it just means gathering. It's a Greek word, coming together. Um, and uh, it's a yeah, technical term for when, when people actually come together to be together. And so, um, okay. I lost my spot now. At these gatherings, someone had to preside. Someone had to repeat the words of Christ, offer prayers for the community, and distribute the gifts. Obviously, the apostles themselves would have led these initial services. But what about the leadership in the various local churches? As Christianity spread, what happened? There were only so many apostles. So we know from the Old Testament, excuse me, the New Testament, that the apostles appointed bishops, presbyters, and deacons to lead the local communities. The roles that these persons played in the life of the church were defined in the Eucharistic gathering. In the New Testament, the terms bishop and presbyter were used interchangeably. This does not mean, however, that the specific offices themselves were interchangeable. So, um, so we got the word bishop. Or you hear, you hear, and some people will will transcribe the, or transliterate the Greek, episkopos. Episkopos. And then uh, presbyter. And that word episkopos actually comes from a word that was just like the chief servant of a household. <laughs> it's kind of cool. Word, you know, so it wasn't some highfalutin guy, you know, who's trying to control other people's lives. But but the, the chief servant. And that's consistent with the teaching of Christ. He who would be the greatest of you must be the servant, servant of all. And so that's what a bishop must be. And then presbyter, sometimes translated as elder, priest. But um, So it simply means that, the, that these... In that these terms were used interchangeably, it means that the terminology had not been precisely defined at that time. And this makes perfect sense when we consider that the bishop himself is a presbyter, the presiding presbyter. So you hear the term like president or something like that. It's not a title, it's actually a function. I mean, someone has to preside. What is a president? Someone who presides. Someone who brings people together and reminds them of why we're here together. St. Clement, the third bishop of Rome, wrote a very important letter to the church in Corinth around the year A.D. 96. In it, he also used the bishop and presbyter, the term bishop and presbyter interchangeably. Yet it's perfectly clear from the letter that he had a specific church structure in mind. And here's what he wrote. And like the, the epistles of Clement, for example, 
are available online. You can look up the, the, the early church father's writings. You can read. You know. Yeah, I, you can give a talk on this. You know. <laughs> but everything is, everything's public domain and available online. If you go to ccel.org, you know, yeah, um, Christian Classics Ethereal Library, you, know, you, can, you can find the, um, the Apostolic Fathers. And uh, it's very striking. You're going to have a crisis, you know, if you start reading about St. Ignatius of Antioch and what he says about the importance of the bishop and the community, and same with uh, Clement. But again, if you're willing to, to hear what the church was like as inspired by the Holy Spirit in the early days, um, then you'll have a good crisis because it'll confirm what orthodoxy has always believed, you know. This is what happened with the evangelical orthodox there, there was a group of, uh, the origins of this parish are, um, were a, were a, a, we were a part of what was called the Evangelical Orthodox Church. Have you guys ever heard of that? There were a bunch of, pro, there were a bunch of Protestant, I'll try to summarize you quickly, but there were a bunch of youth, um, kind of youth ministers who were doing college campus ministry with Campus Crusade for Christ. And they were doing their own kind of like, it's called parachurch. They weren't a part of a particular denomination. They just had their, their Bible studies and meetings with kids, prayer meetings. And then as kids were starting to take their faith seriously, they realized we kind of need more than just a Bible study with us. Like we need to figure out what the church is really like. And if we're going to figure out what the church is really supposed to be, let's go back to the beginning. And so they went to, they read the, the New Testament, which they loved. And then they kept reading the Apostolic Fathers, those who had come after the writings of the, you know, the New Testament. They started reading like St. Ignatius and St. Clement and others. And one would study church structure. One would study church worship. One would study doctrine. And every time they'd get back together, they'd go, guys, you're not going to like what I have to tell you. They had bishops. What? They had bishops in the early church? They had bishops. Well, okay, then I guess some of us have to be bishops. And so they, then, okay, well, we, I'll, you'll be a bishop, okay? And I'll be, a, you know, a presbyter. And so, okay, so we've got a few bishops now. And guys, you're not going to like what you are going to hear. They had communion every single time they got together. What? Like, we do that once a month so we don't overdo it. Well... They did it every time. They believed that this is what was like at the core of the church's gathering to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Oh, man. And then the other one's like, guys, you're not going to like what I'm about to tell you. They had structure to their worship. They had like a way of doing their services. What? What does that mean? And so as they kept going, they... They started implementing the different prayers, you know, formal prayers. They had their own funny way, you know, their own kind of evan contemporary evangelical way of doing things with guitars and things and songs. But then they had, they had you know, like a structure. It was, lit oh, the, the big word was liturgical. Their worship was liturgical. No. And so they implemented that liturgical structure. And by the end of their study, they were doing their own version of the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom in this little EOC, Evangelical Orthodox Church. They had created their own denomination. And then they finally came to the realization that 
We're trying to do orthodoxy, but we're not orthodox. We should actually try to become orthodox. And so <clears throat> Father Peter Gilquist wrote about it in his book called Becoming Orthodox. And uh, longer story short is eventually they, this group of about, I think, 3,000 people became a part of the, the Antiochian Archdiocese in North America. And uh, I won't get into how there are different expressions of Orthodox in the U.S. We're all in communion with one another. You know, the Greek church and the Antiochian and the Russian church and the Serbian and Bulgarian. But it has mostly to do with the fact that the United States is a fairly um, young country, actually. And a lot of immigrants have come here and established churches from old countries. But the church is still one. We just don't have administrative unity in the U.S. yet. Um, so that being said, what does St. Clement have to say? He says, he commanded us to celebrate sacrifices and services. Meaning the offering, the oblation. We use the word oblation. That's an offering or a sacrifice of what you have. You're giving of what you have. The bread and the wine. We're not actually killing something. We call it the bloodless sacrifice actually in the, in the church. But he says, Christ commanded us, he commanded us to celebrate sacrifices and services and that it should not be thoughtlessly or, disor or disorderly, but at fixed times and hours. He has himself fixed by his supreme will the places and persons whom he desires for these celebrations in order that all things may be done piously according to his pl good pleasure and be acceptable to his will. For to the high priest, his proper ministrations are allotted. And to the priests, the, um, like the, the bishop would have been referred to as like a, like, likened to a high priest. Um, and to the priests, the proper place has been appointed. And on the Levites, their proper services have been imposed. The layman is bound by the ordinances for the laity. So that's from the first epistle of St. Clement. Here St. Clement uses the Old Testament imagery of the high priest, priests, and Levites to represent the bishop, the presbyters, and the deacons. So, so I, I've had people challenge me on occasion, and I'm not an apologist, by the way. I just believe what I believe. I mean, I strongly believe what the church teaches, and I try to bear witness to it. But um, I, if someone challenges me and says, well, the priesthood was abolished. Like I've had that happen before. Ever since Christ came, the priesthood has been abolished. Well, I, all I have to say is that's just not true. It never was abolished. Even, even up into, you know, all the way up for the first 1,500 years of, or more of Christianity. More. Because even the reformers had the priesthood. Um, and then it wasn't until later that you had like the breaking away from the Anglican Church and things where there was, there was no priesthood, but then they replaced the priesthood with pastor. Just kind of the same thing, the person in charge. And pastor is a good word. It comes from the Greek word pimin, which just means shepherd. And that's a biblical word. Um, but anyway, but the, but the structure carries over from the inspired worship of the Old Testament. Was it not God who inspired the Israelites, the people of Israel, um, to worship in such a way? And so there's always been understood that there's a continuity, and that's okay. So, and there are also, interestingly, there are people who, who try to go back, and they try to, they call themselves Messianic Jews, 
Have you heard that? Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's actually a modern phenomenon of people who are trying to go back to the Jewish origins of Christianity and interweave what they understand as authentic Jewish practices into their Christian faith and life. But what they've created is a new denomination. If you're looking for Messianic Judaism, it's called you know, Orthodox Christianity, actually, because the church became, you know, came out of Judaism and its rites and practices were informed by the Old Testament. And there's continuity. And there's, there's a, a great book, actually, on that topic. Didn't you just read it? Was it you? The one about the, the continuity between the Old Testament and the New, um, New Testament and the church's worship. So I think we keep that in the bookstore. But if anyone's interested in looking at that, I, have, I can throw. I'm always happy to give books out to people to read. So notice also that St. Clement considered the laity to be... La, the word laity just comes from the, the, another Greek word, laos, which just means pe- people, you know. The laity to be a specific order of the church. And the importance of the laity in the life of the church is stressed in what's called canon law. And I have a, a note um, what canon law is. So I have a note from um, a, a teacher of what's called canon law. And canon law is basically, over time, we have the scriptures, and we have the worship of the church, but as different anomalies took place, as different questions came up, like one of my favorite ones is uh, to think about funny things like, well, can we bring animals into the church? You know, why or why not? And the church would set up rules. The word canona just means a, a rule or a measurement. And they were guidelines, they were pastoral guidelines by which the church is, you know, is guided to behave, to maintain the, um, uh, the good order in the church. And so there's always this, uh, this pastoral um, aspect to what we call the canons. The word law is used, canon law, um, because, it, because it's binding. We can't just choose to do whatever we want. But there's also a way of interpreting the canons. Like there are certain ones that, that applied in the 4th century addressing something uniquely happen, happening in you know, Nicaea that we may never experience here. But um, a teacher of canon law says, When our Lord entrusted the work of salvation to the church, which is a society of mortal men and women, he obliged her, the church, to provide herself with the necessary means of survival. This was to assist her in organizing herself in overseeing the orthodoxy of her members, helping people preserve the integrity of their faith, and in guarding against factions. And so the guidance that has come from the church was always about preserving the unity of the faith. A lot of times, people who are especially suspicious of institutional Christianity, and maybe who have been wounded by, um, by domineering, manipulative church leaders too. People have, may have been hurt, traumatized by poor church leadership, or have come out of cult environments. We've experienced that. They automatically are afraid of structure and authority, what that might mean. But the purpose of it is was always to preserve the unity of the faith, to guard against factions. And in short, he obliged the church to provide herself with a set of rules to live by. In doing so, the church as a community of faith came to be associated 
with or likened to a juridical organization, meaning uh, an organization that has laws. This does not mean, however, that the community of the faith was thereby reduced to a legal institution. Again, the, the laws or the canons of the church are only justified by their use, not by having been instituted. They were instituted for a reason. And th this distinction is an important one. So if you hear about, you know, canon law or something, um, that's what we're talking about. And if you go and read, actually, the, the writings of the fathers of the ecumenical councils, which are also all available online, <laughs> you, know, you, can, you can look up the first ecumenical council documents, and there were, there were doctrinal statements that were made, like opposing the, the heresy of Arius, who denied the divinity of Christ. But then there were also um, pastoral canons that were given to the people about how to maintain decency and good order in the church. So the importance of the laity is, in the life of the church is stressed by canon law, by the fact that priests are forbidden, for example, from celebrating the divine liturgy alone. Is there any communion when I'm by myself? By definition, it's, there can't be. Communion means be, communing with one another. So I can't just come and serve the divine liturgy or have communion by myself. I need someone else here. There must be at least one other person present to represent the people of God. St. Irenaeus of Leon, writing around the year 8180, um, was also used bishop and presbyter interchangeably. As with St. Clement, however, it's perfectly clear that he was thinking of a specific structure, although he spoke of the presbyters as having their succession from the apostles when providing a list of apostolic succession of the church of Rome. He, he gave a list of single names, one bishop succeeding another. So he says, as bishop of Rome, Linus, Anacletus, Clement mentioned above, Evarestus, Alexander, Sixtus, uh, Telesphoros, Hyginus, Pius, Anikitus, Sotor, and Eleftherus. Irenaeus may have used the terms interchangeably, but there's no doubt that he knew of only one bishop in a local church at a time. I'm going to grab something to show you really quick. I don't know if any of you ever noticed this posted out in the narthex, um, the entry to the church. And you might want to just check it out. But you have the, uh, the patriarchs of Antioch, meaning the bishops, the head bishops of, of Antioch, from the time of St. Peter to the present. And um, so there have been 167 bishops. So we have them all, you know, all by name right here. So there is a living continuity um, I'll put that up there, but it just hangs out, you know, in the narthex, and if you want to ever check it out. But it's just a list of names, but it shows that there is um, a living continuity. In the second century, there was one writer, however, who, who did use bishop and presbyter consistently, and his usage eventually became the standard throughout the church, and that's the one who will, you know, rock your world if you're um, interested in reading him. And I highly actually recommend reading the writings of St. Ignatius, St. Ignatius became Bishop of Antioch, the city where the disciples were first called Christians. 
sometime in the late 70s of the first century. Around the year AD 107, he was arrested and taken to Rome to be martyred. And we have, again, I, I point to his icon. It's indicating that he was, he was, thro- he was thrown to the lions and, and, and put in the arena. And uh, there's a, a sweet little boy was vis- visiting our church and he walked up to that icon and he went, oh, that's just not what, that's not right. What they're doing to him. So sweet. It wasn't right. And so, um, but um, he was taken to Rome to be martyred. And on his way, he wrote seven important letters to various churches. And those are still extant. You know, they're available in English. A lot of the translations are a little like older English style, you know, but they're still quite readable. I got the entire set of the church fathers. There's a huge multi-volume set that has, I don't know if it has like 40 books um, that's popular, popularly gaining dust on people's bookshelves. Um, but it's also available digitally now. You can access it online. It's called the Anti-Nicene Fathers. Anti just means they're, they're keeping track of kind of the timeline of the church. Anti means before, not anti. Anti-Nicene. The Nicene Fathers, the time of kind of the first ecumenical council and below. And then what's the, what's the final section? Are there, aren't there three sets, yeah, Carl? Yeah, it, it's, it's the post-Nicene. Post-Nicene, yeah, thank you. Post-Nicene. Um, you can buy those online. And I bought, for two ninety nine. I bought the whole thing digitally on a you know, Kindle version. So, um, so I can just go on my, bring up my Kindle app and I can read St. Ignatius or St. Clement or St. John Chrysostom or there are many, St. Augustine. I mean, oh, I have no excuses. Yeah, they now, they now have them for free. I got them. Yeah, they're, okay, they're free online. Mm-hmm. If you look them up on Amazon Kindle, you, you can download those for yeah, for nothing. What? Is there someone in there? <laughs> yes, this is Julia. Hi, Christ is risen. Indeed, he is risen. Stan and I have, um, you know, we're here listening, and he pointed out to me, he goes, at half price books, they always have a copy of the, of the anti-Nicene. Yeah, they do. Because a, a lot of people get them, but they don't actually read them because they use the internet now. Yeah, but I usually have a, one or two copies floating around in, in my house somewhere. But uh, yeah. Would we be interested in having an inexpensive copy put in the church library? Well, we we actually do. We do. Um, we have a set. Okay. Yeah. But you're asking if um, anyone would like to relieve you of your collection, perhaps. I don't have a. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, let's. Yeah, that makes sense. So, okay, so going back to um, this, the letters of Saint Ignatius, which are again, if you want to read something good this week, look at look up the the writings of Saint Ignatius of Antioch. Um, so, Saint Ignatius' primary concern was the unity of the church. He had read John seventeen. And so just as the Father is the principal unity within the Holy Trinity, 
So the bishop is looked at as the center of the visible unity of the church on earth. And he says things like this. I advise you, be eager to act always in godly concord with the bishop presiding as the counterpart of God, the presbyters as the counterpart of the council of the apostles, and the deacons most dear to me who have been entrusted with a service under Jesus Christ, who was with the Father before all ages and appeared at the end of time. Let there be nothing among you which will have power to divide you, but be united with the bishop and with those who preside for an, an example and instruction in incorruptibility. Um, this is just, you know, the, so he, he lived at the same time of Christ, and, and um, we're talking just, you know, the generation, the continuation of the generation after the apostles here. So St. Ignatius' terminology eventually became the standard terminology for the whole church. Thus, the local church is comprised of one bishop, who is the first and presiding presbyter. And the bishop likes to remind us when, he, when we get together with the clergy. He says, I can't do anything more than you can do other than ordain. He can ordain priests and, and deacons. But he's like, I, I serve the liturgy just like you. I serve the sacraments just, just like you do. He's like, I'm just, really, I'm just a priest. Um, and so, um, so the church has a bishop, was the first providing, presiding presbyter, oh, the college of presbyters or priests and deacons, and the laity, the people of God. And those are not qual- qualitative attributions. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, the bishop is, he's amazing. And then the, the priest is, it's not good, better, best. You know, um, everyone has a, a different calling, a unique vocation. So you're not qualitatively less valuable than, than I am because I'm a priest and you're a lay person. You know, sometimes, you know, I, I remember how wonderful it was to be a layman in the church, but also what a great gift it is to be a priest. But that was my calling. And the only reason I became a priest is because, I mean, I, I believe, is because God called me to the priesthood. And the people of God actually affirmed it. That's another thing. It wasn't, it wasn't an ambition like, oh, I would love to ascend the ranks. You know, when I was ordained, someone said, congratulations. And I said, oh, you're congratulating me on the day of my martyrdom. Because really to be, to, to be a priest is to, to die to yourself in order to feed the people of God. You know, to live for, um, like a shepherd, you know, who gives his life up for his sheep. And then, therefore, then, it's not, it's not just a... Uh, it's not a, a job title or a profession either. It's a, it's a life. I mean, orthodoxy is a way of life, not just a denominational preference. And so the life of, you know, like a bishop is, it's not like he's a, a bishop on, you know, Sunday through Friday, but he gets Saturday off from being a bishop. Like he's a bishop all the time. And it would be some, and I, so I'm a priest all the time. I'm never not a priest, you know. I'm, um, Although every once in a while my wife will say, you're not priesting today, you know. <laughs> Sometimes she wants me to, you know, just to be there with my family. Um, and that's fair, just focusing on them. But, but it's true, I'm never not, because there has been, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, for example, I've been called to the priesthood, just like each and every one of us who are here, hopefully, you know, are called to follow Christ, and then we choose 
whether or not we were going to do that. So in modern parish life, however, there is usually only one presbyter. The bishop is the head of a large diocese, which is just, just an area. Usually what would happen is as Christianity spread, there would be, there, there would be not more, there'd be a need for more than one core community. You know, the upper room could only hold so many people. So they start meeting in other places and they needed people to preside in other places. So the bishop would preside in, and once they started build, building churches, once the church was no longer under persecution, um, they would build a church, which is the, the cathedral where the bishop would be. And then in that surrounding metropolitan area, you hear the word metropolitan as a bishop sometimes. He was just the bishop of a metro metropolitan area, an area surrounding a particular um, city, an area where there's a high concentration of people. And so then the bishop would, would be kind of that, that principle of unity, you know, among the priests. He, I call him the shepherd of the shepherds. Um, and then there would be elders who were priests ordained to serve in their particular communities in that area. And that's, that's how the structure of the church developed. And then also deacons to, to help support the ministry of the priest. Because the priest can't do... You know, can't do everything. And I mean that, like, just true, honestly, you know. Um, they even discovered that in the book of Acts, you know. We're, we're supposed to be preaching the word of God, and it's hard for us, we, you know, not serving the tables, which means meeting the needs of the people, the basic needs of the people all the time. We need help with that. And so the diaconate came. And the word deacon comes from the Greek word uh, well, diakonia, which means service. So, um, I would love to have more deacons and another priest here, though, sometime. We had another priest. Then, see, I, I love hearing confessions. And so I could have a priest, like, serve Orthros in the morning on Sunday, and I could be somewhere hearing confessions, you know, throughout that whole service. Or we would never have an excuse for not having a service either. He could serve and I could sing. I could fulfill my, my dreams of being a chanter again, you know. <laughs> I used to be a choir director for a long time here, and I really loved, loved doing that. And while it was wonderful to become a priest, it was hard to stop doing that too because I loved, I loved singing the services of the church. So every once in a while, if we don't have a chanter available, You'll catch me. Some of you have seen this over the last couple of years during the COVID time and stuff. I would do a service kind of by myself where I would lead the singing and uh, from over from the choir stands. And anyway, um, I'm not going to go back in time, you know, and stop being a priest, but it's kind of nice to be able to, to sing every once in a while. So, um, um, so the bishop is the head of a large diocese and the United States is unique because the United States is huge. Look at countries in Europe. How big is a country? Like the size of one of our states. You know? And one country, in the, like Serbia, I mean, it's tiny. And, and then they would have, not only do they have like a, a head bishop, a patriarch, but they also have bishops of metropolitan areas and priests. And so the United States is, is still kind of unwieldy because it's so big. I feel like no one's asking for my advice, but if they did, I would say, let's break the United States up into sections 
and each could have its own kind of self-governed, so to speak, you know, Orthodox um, archdiocese. Because the U.S. is just so big, it's hard. It's hard for it to be one archdiocese because of the expanse of it. But um, so how did this come about? How does the modern structure of the church reflect the ancient practice? In the early years, Christianity was primarily an urban phenomenon. So there was only one church in a given city. And as more people in the outlying areas responded to the gospel, however, it became impossible for all the people to meet at one place for the Eucharist. In North Africa, the problem was solved by simply duplicating the existing church structure in every little village. Thus, communities with less than 25 people could end up with a bishop, a council of presbyters, and deacons. This, however, proved to be very impractical, and the practice did not last long. Elsewhere, the bishop of a local church delegated presbyters and deacons to go to various outlying areas and villages to minister there, creating what we call today parishes. The group of parishes around a local church is now called a diocese. So you have a diocese, which is a big, you know, an area that consists of parishes, which are our churches, our church, our communities. In modern practice, then, the local church is the diocese comprised of its bishop, all of the presbyters, the priests, who are usually appointed as pastors of individual parishes. So to be a priest is not, this, is not to be a pastor, per se. Um, I am a priest, and I'm assigned as the pastor of this parish. That's my role, as to shepherd this flock of St. Paul Orthodox Church. But there are other, like, um, <clears throat> priests who would be, like Father James is retired, who came. He's not a pastor anymore. Still a priest, but he's not pastoring. So a pastor is another functional title that we use. Um, always a priest, not necessarily a pastor, unless I'm assigned as a pastor to a particular community. That We have some priests who are... Um, who are educators, who teach at our seminaries, not serving as pastors, they're serving as professors, for example. So even though they might provide some kind of pastoral, you know, ministry in a way by um, cultivating the spiritual life in, um, in their students. But anyway, it's just a little difference in terminology. So all of the deacons um, are attached to individual parishes, just like the priests are and all of the faithful. So this situation is the product of the church's tremendous growth. It allows for the expansion of the church, yet at the same time preserves her basic Trinitarian structure. Because of this Trinitarian structure, each um, local church is Catholic. And that, that word Catholic is, means the fullness of the church. And it was co-opted by the Roman church yeah, to, to, to refer to itself as, you know, the church, the Roman Catholic Church. But St. Ignatius is actually the first one who used the, the term um, Catholic. And it means the fullness of the church, the fullness of life in Christ. So, um, that, so that the church is whole and complete, lacking nothing for the salvation of her members. One of my friends who's, who is a metropolitan himself, he likes to say that orthodoxy is Christianity, nothing added, nothing taken away. To use C.S. Lewis's term, he calls orthodoxy is just mere Christianity. 
the many churches throughout the world are united by an identical faith and sacramental life and by the communion of their bishops. Churches in a given area, usually, but not always coinciding with national borders. Again, it's, that's another one of those tricky things. Usually there is an indigenous church, you know, because there is a culture kind of defined, bounded by whatever secular borders have been. You know, there's Greek culture, there's Romanian culture, there's Bulgarian culture. And so those borders generally work. But again, the United States is so, I, I riff on this complaint all the time, so big. And there are actually many subcultures even within the United States. But um, anyway, but they're usually coinciding with national borders and they're grouped together, which we would call a local church. With, you know, indigenous leadership, with people whose, you know, the services are being served in the language that the people speak. And that was one of the principles of Orthodox missions, as we discussed last week. Going in, creating a written alphabet if needed. Communicating the gospel and the teaching of the church in the language of the people they were ministering to. And the bishops meet together regularly in meetings called synods. And a synod is like kind of like that word synaxis. Synod is um, another word for it. It's sometimes um, it translated as council. But people coming together. Um, and uh, the largest synod by far is the Synod of the Church of Russia, chaired by the Patriarch of Moscow. And the Synod of the Church of Cyprus, on the other hand, is quite small by comparison. Well, how big is Cyprus compared to Russia? You know, it's a dot compared to a circle, you know, you could say. So Sias, however, has nothing to do with holiness. The dioceses, the local churches that make up the Church of Cyprus, are no less orthodox, no less possessed of the promises of Christ than the dioceses which make up the Church of Russia or anywhere else. Ultimately, it's the presence of Christ himself in the church that makes each and every local church his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That's Ephesians 1.23. And uh, so, so what we would say then, any, any, any community, even if it's just two people, two Orthodox people, one priest and one layperson celebrating the divine liturgy, we wouldn't say, oh, just a little bit of the church is there. We would say the fullness of the church is even there. Christ is no less present where there are fewer people than where there are many people because the church is the church in its fullness um, wherever, wherever the, the holy mysteries, wherever the liturgy is being celebrated. So the quality of the church is never compromised by the quantity of the people present. Although I like to say, I, like, I would love for as many people to be present as possible. You know, like for everyone to become orthodox, you know. Um, that's another mystery that God is working out in the lives of the people around us. Why, why you and I and not others? Why are we drawn to orthodoxy? I don't, because God has call, called this. God's revelation to the human heart. Here we are being challenged with the question of the unity of the faith and whether or not we want to enter into this fullness and whether or not we think it is, the, we believe it's the fullness. And if we do, then we, we better draw near. Okay, what time is it? One thirty-seven. Okay. Um, 
Let me read, I'll read the next couple of quotes from the fathers. We have another St. Ignatius um, quote, and he says, let no one do anything that pertains to the church apart from the bishop. What if the bishop, bishop's gone bad? What if there was a, a, video, a video that came out, came out about bishops gone? What was that one? Girls, girls gone wrong or something like that that came out a while? You know what I mean? Like they, they were advertising in the 90s. What if it was bishops gone wrong or something like that? Well, yeah, that's why there's a synod. And actually the people of God have a, a binding authority over a corrupt bishop. And if there is corruption in leadership, then the people can appeal to another bishop in order to intervene. And they actually must in order to preserve the faith, not say, oh, well, he's in charge, and so we can't do anything because we're just lay people. I mean, you know, you can't just kind of try to co-opt or subvert a bishop because you don't like his personality or something like that. But if, if he really is going into heresy, and this has often been the case when there are bad leaders in place, it's not like the church just implodes. It's the, the people preserve the faith. And actually the church in Russia under communism, when the men were being systematically pulled from their families and put in concentration camps, who was it that preserved the church? And with having the, the babies secretly baptized, the, the old ladies, the grandmas, the grandmothers who kept the faith Sneaking around. No one suspected them. And the old priests who were so decrepit that no one thought they could do any good. Baptizing babies, you know, in the basement or something like that. But keeping the church going. And so, God is always doing much more than meets the eye. So, anyway, but, but the role of the bishop is important in the structure of the church. So he says, let that be considered a valid Eucharist, which is under the bishop or one whom he has delegated. So I am one that has been delegated as a priest, one delegated to serve the Eucharist. No one can just because they would like to. They have to be delegated by, you know, in the apostolic tradition of the church. Wherever the bishop shall appear, there let the people be. Just as wherever Christ Jesus may be, there is the Catholic Church. Take great care to keep one Eucharist for there is one flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ and one cup to unite us by his blood, one sanctuary, as there is one bishop, together with the presbytery and the deacons, my fellow servants. Thus all your acts may be done according to God's will. And then next, we have a quote from um, St. Irenaeus. He says, For where the church is, there is the Spirit of God. And where the Spirit of God is, there is the church and every kind of grace. The Spirit is truth. Therefore, those who have no share in the Spirit are not nourished and given life at their mother's breast, nor do they enjoy the sparkling fountain that issues from the body of Christ. So what we're gathering here is, this, <clears throat> is that, um, again, the, the church became a definite structure. Um, it, had a, it had structure, it had purpose, there were people in leadership, and their goal was to serve the church. All of those who are ordained um, are there to preserve the unity of the faith and to fulfill that, that high priestly prayer that the Lord Jesus made in John 17, that they may be one. 
And if a bishop is, is losing that perspective, then Lord have mercy on him because his, his purpose is to serve the people of God and to preserve the unity of the faith. And that really means, how do, how do you do it? Not in a human way. You have to be inspired by the grace of the Holy Spirit. When, when, I, when I, I was getting to know our bishop, Metropolitan Joseph, um, one of the things that he told me about the bishops, and by extension, the priests, he said so simply, We're, we are here to wash your feet. We're here to wash your feet. Just like Christ bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples. And I've thought, even if I'm not physically washing your feet, taking off your shoes and socks and washing, I have to be spiritually washing your feet all the time. Um, serving you. Bowing down before the people that I'm supposed to be in leadership of. Bowing down before you. and Cleansing and washing you. And praying for you. So we're here to wash your feet. And that's been one of those inspiring statements that, you know, what the bishop said that has always stuck with me. Special study. Will we have time to get into the ecumenical councils? Let's see how far we can get. I'm going to keep checking the time. Okay, we have 15, about 15 minutes. And we're just going to do a real quick overview. So maybe we will have time to do it in 15 minutes if I don't... Uh, go off script too much here. Um, during the early church, years of the church, when a dispute arose concerning whether or not Gentile converts should be circumcised, the apostles met, to, met together in Jerusalem to resolve the issue. If you look in Acts 15, we say that's the first council that took place. This council set the precedent for all future gatherings of the church's leaders. How did they do it? It wasn't just one Guy said, I'm in charge of this community, and that's how we're going to do it. They gathered together in council, and they said something so important and so inspiring. It seemed good to us. Do you know what it says? It seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. Yeah, not just good to us. That's not enough. As the church grew and spread throughout the Roman Empire, it became necessary for the bishops of the churches in a given area to meet together on a regular basis to address issues of common concern. Apostolic Canon 34 provides for the creation of a regional synod, a regional gathering of bishops. The bishops of a given area were to gather together twice a year. The meetings were to be chaired by the bishops of the major city in the area, the metropolis. The bishop of this city became known as the Metropolitan. Each bishop was responsible for the governance of his church. Issues of common concern, however, were brought before the regional synod and decided by all of the bishops. The Metropolitan did not rule the synod, but he, had, he did have the veto power over the synod's decisions. Just as nothing within a given church could be done without the bishop's approval, so nothing could be done in a region that affected more than one church without the approval of the Metropolitan. The Metropolitan then served as the principle of unity within the Synod. Some issues, however, such as doctrinal questions, involved more 
than the churches of a particular region. And so you, you will have, you'll have regional synods and canons, so to speak, church you know, guidelines that were produced by a regional synod or council, a local council, they're called. But there were things that, that became um, widespread. They, they, they affected what was called at that time the ecumene, the inhabited world, the civilized world. And so they would have the, um, these ecumenical councils addressing issues that, were, that had basically universal significance. So they were more than just regional. For this reason, larger gatherings of bishops were called to deal with issues pertaining to the universal church. The largest and most important of these gatherings were called ecumenical councils. The ecumenical councils were originally convened by the Roman emperor and presided over by a senior bishop. The Orthodox Church recognizes seven councils as being ecumenical. And if you're a smarty pants and want to say that there are eight or nine, let's talk about that another time. <laughs> but, and I know who you are too. And you could be right, by the way. Um, but technically, there are officially, kind of formally, seven official ecumenical councils. And so... Um, we'll review just very briefly what they went over. And if you're interested in this kind of thing, if you want to, it's not necessary for you to dig into these on a personal level, unless you're interested in it, and you, you can. Um, but just know that you're going to be wading through um, some, some grass along the way, because some of the things will make sense to you and some of it will not, because, again, there are some local issues dealt with. But you can read the the things written by the ecumenical councils. So the first one, Nicaea I, that met in AD 325. This council was called to deal with the heresy of Arianism. And Arianism comes from their leader whose name was Arius. So it's the teaching that the Word and Son of God is a created being. The first part of the Nicene Creed was drafted here. The hero of Nicaea I was St. Athanasios of Alexandria, whose theology was decisive, even though, as a deacon at the time, he could not vote. But um, he, and he, he wrote probably the most famous you know, work of St. Athanasios and of that time, you know, is called On the Incarnation. And it's kind of a tough read, but I recommend it. I put it on my required reading list for people who are exploring orthodoxy. And... There's one published by St. Vladimir Seminary Press um, on the Incarnation. On the Incarnation. Um, uh, incarnation by St. Athanasios. Father, is St. Vladimir the one that C.S. Lewis yeah, and so I was going to say that the um, C.S. Lewis wrote a foreword to to the one put up by Saint Vladimir's Seminary Press, and his um, his foreword is really good, actually. Um, I think it's really valuable to read, along with the, the text itself. So, um, the next Constantinople one. Um, so you can see there were certain uh, councils that were held in certain places, certain cities, more than once. 
So in 8381, this council expanded and completed the Nicene Creed. So we're talking about fourth century, you know, just a, just a few generations into Christianity, not very long after the time of Christ and the apostles. The theology of the Cappadocian fathers, St. Basil the Great, St. Gregory the Theologian, and St. Gregory of Nyssa were particularly, particularly influential here. Ephesus, AD 431. This council condemned the teaching of Patriarch Nestorius of Constantinople. So there you have a bishop, bishops gone bad, um, who refused to accept the unity of humanity and divinity in the person of Christ. He refused to, to believe that Christ was fully God and fully man and refused to call the Virgin Mary Theotokos. So because we believe that Christ is God, as a doctrinal nuance and an expression of our faith, we would say that Mary gave birth to not just Christ, but God. We call her the, the birth giver of God. That's what Theotokos means. So what we say about her is always actually an expression of what we believe about Christ. Nestorius wanted to call her Christotokos. I'll, I'll say that she gave birth to Christ but not to God. And the church, again, saying that Christ was fully God and fully man, said we, ha we have to call her Theotokos. And the council agreed on that. And so you can see who, you know, in the very early days of the church, the church is basically confirming. Again, this, so we're talking 431. This, this doesn't mean that all of a sudden they started talking about it in the 400s because they were interested in it. You know, it means that th this conversation about who she is and who Christ is has been going on. And it finally got to a point where they had to kind of ratify it, you know, put it down in writing officially. The next is Chalcedon, AD 451. This council was called to combat the, his um, the heresy of Nestorianism. The opposite, excuse me, heresy of Nestorianism, Monophysitism. According to the Monophysites, Christ's divine nature swallowed up his human nature. So the word mano, mano means one, physis means nature. So monophysitism meant that, that they claimed that Christ only had one nature, that it was his divine nature that swallowed up his human one, leaving him with only one nature. The bishops accepted what's called the tome of Pope Leo. He wasn't a, a Roman Catholic pope. He was the bishop of Rome. Um, but they accepted, and you can read the tome of Leo, um, the great um, online, along with the theology of St. Kirill of Alexandria as the standard of orthodox thought concerning the person of Christ. The council decreed that in Christ, the divine and human nature exist without mixture, confusion, division, or separation. Fully God and fully man. And we bear witness to that every time we make the sign of the cross. We believe in the Trinity, and we believe Christ is fully God and fully man, come down to earth. You know, the whole of our doctrine, you know, what we believe, I call it sign language for our faith. What do you believe this? So, Constantinople 2, 8553. This council further elaborated on the decisions of the decision of the Council of Chalcedon. In addition, some of the teachings of origin of Alexandria, such as the pre-existence of souls, were condemned. Constantinople 3, AD 681. 
this council condemned the heresy of monothelitism, kind of like mon mon monophysitism. Um, they believed that Christ only had one will. Mono, one, thelema means will. Christ only had one will. The bishops affirmed that Christ has a perfect human will as well as a perfect divine will, thus affirming his full humanity. Pope Honorius of Rome was condemned as a heretic for his support of the monothelites. And that word condemned, that, that's a tough word. It, really, it just means you're not orthodox anymore. You know, if you, if you don't believe what seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit, we're preserving the unity of the faith. But um, the word heresy basically means going your own way, doing your own thing. And so um, every heretic was given the opportunity to accept the universal teaching of the church, to have their unique perspective challenged. And you know, the first ecumenical council is famous because St. Nicholas was there, Nicholas of Myra, Bishop of Myra and Lycia, and he was so angry at Arius that he famously hit him. Some people say punched or slapped him. And actually he was, he was disciplined for it. <laughs> you know, because a bishop, a bishop cannot physically harm another person. Can't. Hit, punch, punch. So anyway, but you know, it's like slapping him upside the head. Like, what are you doing? Don't do this. You know, you don't have to. And then there's a council called the Quinisext Council. It was, um, it's also the, it's called the Council in Trullo or also called the Penthecti Council, but it's the 5th, 6th. It was a council that came together between the 5th and 6th councils, um, and not a separate council unto itself. Among other things, it reaffirmed the condemnation of the teachings of Origen. And then Nicaea II in 787, this was called to decide the appropriateness of using icons in the church. The bishops decreed, so back, way back then, you know, they were still, they were dealing with the, the question of icons. The bishops decreed that the veneration, not worship, the veneration of icons was necessary to preserve a proper understanding of the incarnation. And we'll talk more about that. Let's see how we're doing time-wise. <gasps> okay, I think we can, get, we can finish in time. It's important to note that not all the large councils are considered ecumenical councils. We often speak of ecumenical councils as being, quote, infallible, but I don't, I don't like that term. Um, because I think it's a little confusing, especially when, when people think of infallibility, they think of papal Roman Catholic claims, and we don't have those in the church. It might be more helpful to call them like official or binding rather than using the language of infallibility. Um, but there was no guarantee at the beginning of any of these councils that they would be considered infallible. Only after the decisions of a council have been received by the consciousness of the church, and they had to be confirmed by the church as a whole then it could be called an ecumenical council when the bishops met together in council they did not invent new doctrines rather their job was and still is to express the mind and the life of the church um, truth remember truth is never novel but it's constantly being revealed and interpreted and applied a specific situation such as the challenge of a new heresy may necessitate the development of the church's vocabulary or a change in the way the church expresses a particular idea. 
Nevertheless, it's the duty of the bishops to elaborate upon what the Church has always believed and experienced, not to invent new teachings. And that's why it's important for, for leaders in the Church um, to be people who really, pr- who really pray deeply and, you know, read the scriptures. You know, early bishops were supposed to have the whole book of Psalms memorized. We can talk more about that, but not today. When, however, bishops in council did deviate from the faith once delivered, to use the language of uh, Jude, um, and made decrees contrary to the faith and life of the church, the body of the church throughout the world rejected the decisions. A council held in Ephesus in 449 had a greater number of bishops in attendance than many ecumenical councils. So a council that was held in 449, yet its decisions were rejected by the church at large. It's gone down in the history as a robber council. Interestingly enough, and St. Mark of Ephesus won the day. We have him back there on the... He stood up for what's true. He's just to the, over the right shoulder of, uh, of Elizabeth. Um, the purpose of a council, whether a regular meeting of original synod or a gathering of all the world's bishops, is to express the mind and heart of the church as a whole. No single bishop, not even a patriarch, can claim exclusive rights to the Holy Spirit. Who is the head of the Orthodox Church? Christ is the head of the Orthodox Church. The bishops are answerable to the whole church for their decisions, and they should be very humble and fearful about this, the awesome reality that they will answer to God too for the way in which they led people. This is the conciliar process reflecting the conciliar nature of the All-Holy Trinity, which is the supreme expression of authority within the church. It's for this reason that the church cannot and will not accept the claims of the Bishop of Rome, for example, to be infallible and to rule over the entire church. And that's a can of worms right there. Um, Yeah, (laughs) drop a bomb right at the very end, you know. Um, But there is no one person who is the, you know, the head of the church who who speaks, who speaks for Christ, who is, what's a term that they use in the Roman Catholic Church? Vicar, that's the term I was thinking of, the vicar of Christ. No, maybe servant, like speck of dust before Christ, maybe would be something that you know one of us could, could claim, but never the vicar of Christ. And there, there's no one, while when the church affirms the inspired teaching of a particular person, a saint, for example, then it's the church that affirms the holiness of the teaching. It's not the person who chooses whether or not they're speaking with authority, which is what happens in the in the um, the papacy. He can choose when he is going to speak infallibly. You know, it's scary. It's actually scary, and I think the current pope is afraid of that authority. You know, Um, but and I think they know it doesn't work. Honestly, they must know. But what they do have is a very, you know, well-structured institution. Orthodoxy has structure, but it's nothing like that. Um, but that's, this is what is at the, at the core, you know, of the structure 
of the church, preserving the unity of the faith, loving and serving the people of God, bearing witness to what the church has always believed by everyone everywhere, you know, in the, in the church itself. And, um, and also then, what does that do? Again, it, it doesn't lead you to merely a firm foundation. Oh, this is a great structure. You guys have done well here. Orthodoxy has the best of balance, you know, or something like that. But again, the church has to be a place where, where we actually enter into the life of Christ and experience his healing with one another. So our leaders also have to be people who take that healing seriously. And uh, there are many, 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 like one, someone that I, that I might recommend you look up in conclusion. There's a, a bishop named Metropolitan, Erotheos, Vlachos. I think he has a book called, I think it's called The Mind of the Church. We have downstairs. But two of my favorite books are written by him. There's one called, I believe, The Mind of the Church, which is a good mind of the church. My favorite one, though, um, for, for people like you who are you know, exploring getting to know orthodoxy, it has a, a very benign title, but it's a very good book. It's called Orthodox Spirituality. It's pretty small. It's like a 100-page book. Um, for this, when I read this book, um, it was what I call a paradigm-shifting book. I'm not the same person that I was before I read this one. So I don't know if you'll have the same experience. If you experience, if you encounter books that are like that, that are paradigm-shifting for you, you read it and you think, I understand, whoa, I'm different than I was before, or I understand much more, or differently or it really humbled you, you know, let me know. Because I'm always interested in knowing what kinds of books help. But the, th- the, me- the reason I want to mention Metropolitan Orotheos is because he talks about, um, he's very consistent in speaking about the therapeutic tradition of the church. The church is a place of healing. Where when we are striving to become participants in the life of the Holy Trinity, then the result of drawing near to Christ, who united divinity and humanity perfectly within himself, is that we, in entering into communion with God, we start to become, hopefully, integrated beings, whole persons. So rather than becoming, you know, escaping humanity, as we often use that lingo, oh, I'm just human, or this just... Of course we make mistakes. We're human. No, we're actually... Our goal is to, to become truly human. Not to claim that human, to be human is to be less than what God created us for. But to be truly human is to be in the image and conform to the likeness of God, which is the journey that we're on. So beautiful. And if we take the church and her teaching seriously, okay, I might be a kind of a a weak example of the, of, the, of the effectiveness of the church's teaching. But I, I believe it. I, I have a tiny experience of it myself. And um, if we take the church and her teaching seriously and we strive to integrate it into our lives, take it seriously. Pray. Worship together fast and learn. and um, Then that, that good work of God 
by the grace of the Holy Spirit in the church can take place, believe it or not, even in you, even in me. Um, but get ready to change too and to not know the person that, not be the person that you once thought you were. Christ has better plans for you. So may it be so. Let's uh, arise and sing Christ is risen one more time. Well, we'll ring, sing it three times, one more time. And then I'll finally let you go. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. All right, God bless you all. Go in peace. Thank you so much for coming today. God willing, we'll be together next week, and we'll talk about um, baptism.